Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club guest author of the month. Nobody could say political analyst Melani Vavort has wasted her hysterectomy. Instead, traumatic and painful as it was, it triggered a remarkably valuable book and podcast of the same name. Her book covers the reflections on her remarkable life, loves, losses, and much more besides. The podcast series offers incredibly valuable information and advice on hysterectomy and all that goes with it. Well, Melani was a guest at the Women's Own Book Club. I'm Nancy Richards, and I asked her first to tell us about her passion for storytelling. So I'm interested in people. People interest me. I like people. Not all people, but most people. And I'm very interested in the story behind people. I catch myself, since, a ch- since childhood, I would sit at the airport, for example, and I would go, I wonder what's the story. You know, I can remember that. And people hugging each other and being happy to be home and the tears flowing. And I'd go, I wonder what's the story. And I'd be very young. Um, my parents were divorced, so I had to always fly to my dad since the age of five. I had to fly to, to go and see him. So I was on airports a lot and alone, you know. So that's the first thing. So I'm interested in stories. I didn't think I could write. I think partly was because, of course, I went, I'm Afrikaans, and I went to an Afrikaans university. Everything was in Afrikaans. My thesis was in Afrikaans on feminist theology. Then I go to Ireland, and everything has to switch over to English. And it's fine, of course. You know, I can speak English. I can write it fairly okay, but not creatively or anything. And then... A newspaper editor one day asked me if I could write a column for them just about South Africa's Truth Commission, and I belted it out. It wasn't a big deal for me, but, you know, I didn't think it was particularly good, had no confidence in it. And then he came back and said, well, you can really write. But I was telling stories in it. I was telling stories of individual cases in the Truth Commission and then binding it all together. And then he kept asking Um, And then I actually knew, because I've always done diary writing, you know, so I write in diaries every morning. I've got boxes for God knows what whatever will what my (laughs) my my uh, my descendants will think if they ever find those diaries (laughs) for me. So for me, then I realized, look, if you combine the thing, interesting people. But really what for me binds us all together is stories, you know, and is our stories and. I mean, what are we without our stories, right? Isn't that what makes us human, is our stories, right? My dog can't tell me his story. I can tell his story, but he can't tell me my story, his own story. And I think that's the difference, perhaps, is that we can do storytelling. And so when, on this fateful day, when I went to the gynae uh, for my normal checkup, um, had been there the year before, we were chatting away, she was doing an ultrasound and suddenly went mid-sentence, stopped talking, leaned into the ultrasound screen and said, mm, you know, what's going on here? And she said, oh, I don't like what I'm seeing. And then, you know, the room, anybody who's experienced this knows the room goes cold. I don't know what happens. Something happens to the energy in that room. And it just when a doctor says that, you know, something changes in that room. And, and I, even in that moment... I, there was a thought that said, oh, take note, you'll have to write about this. But I think it's not because I want to capitalize on it. It's because I know it's the only way I'll survive it. It's the only way I can make sense of what's happening because I have to take one step back, but it also prevents me from getting too totally absorbed by it because you, when you write and you're thinking about writing, of course, you take yourself a little bit. Not, you can't take yourself completely away from the terror and the fear and the everything, but you step one step back that tiny bit back 
Um, and so with this book, I mean, the Favorite Toy Toy came after my partner died, so that was my way and a, a promise to him as well. But this book was, I started writing it on my bed. And I mean, the notes make no sense to me today, but because I, I was like in pain meds and stuff. But I started making notes in a diary, and I couldn't even lift myself up, so I was like scratching next to me on the bed. Um, yeah, and I think it's that thing. I get so many people asking me, "How do you write a book?" And I say, "Just tell the story that's inside you. Don't think about it. Don't think about selling it." And while I was finishing this book, I had a major sort of self-doubt about it, as we all do when we write, I think. And um, somebody in London, a friend, reminded me, and she said, look, remember, you always just write for yourself. You never write for others. Nobody must ever, maybe if you're Paulo Coelho and you're under, under a contract that pays you a couple of million, you d that doesn't matter then so much. But if, you know, I think those of us who write just because there's no reward for us in it except to get the story out... We write for ourselves. It's our way of making sense. And then if it means anything to anybody, um, that's a big gift to the writer, you know, and that's how I see it. Yeah. So the writing, as you described, the hysterectomy, post-hysterectomy writing, but writing, it's been a way of making sense of mm. things for you for quite a long time. And there's quite a lot of posthumous thinking mm. in this book. You mm. go back. It's like it's sort of triggered all sorts of memories, yeah. you know, and many, many memories. But I want to go back even further because you mentioned there that you grew up Afrikaans, you're Afrikaans-speaking. So working in another language, I can't help feeling, must be quite difficult. But interesting about your childhood bit of an absent dad, very absent dad, mm -hmm. but your mum appears quite often as someone from whom you inherited a lot of things. Did you inherit storytelling? Did she talk to you a lot? T tell us a little bit about your mum, a lot of things you got from her, not least your obsession with not having enough money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Calvinism. So... Look, yes, Afrikaans is my language. I still get my E's and R's. Oh, English, the ridiculous language. <laughs> Honestly, you know, Afrikaans is so simple. Oy, you know, and my tenses. Um, so I have s people who look at it. In this book, Bishop Peter's story that you might know, Bishop's story um, had a look at it and did a lot of sort of fixing languages for me in there. And he would tell you that my E's and my R's still, and my tenses, he says my tenses are always off. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things. It's a complex language if you grew up in Afrikaans, which is a very simple grammatical structures and don't have singular and plural verbs and all that kind of thing. But now I think in, uh, in English when I write. I find that somebody asked me recently to write for Sari, and I said, yeah, but I'll have to do it in English, and you translate. I can't do fancy Afrikaans anymore. So my mom, I think my storytelling actually comes from my grandmother. I had an amazing grandmother. She was tiny. They grew up in a farm outside Fochville. She left school at primary level. You know, she, I think she was standard three or something like that, or standard five, the old standard five, because her mother died. And she had to look after all the kids below her. And her older sisters were already married and so on. So, and my granny was amazing. I mean, she lived on this farm. They were extremely poor. And her life was about reading little books, you know, that she could find. And, and she told stories. She would, you know, at night. I mean, I, we still laugh about it. And my grandfather would sit next to the Aga stove, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Aga stove. And he would sit like this because it was cold. Obviously, it's Fochville is close to Portrush Thruam, you know, that area and so he would sit like with his head in his hands like this fast asleep and my grandmother would have her singular narrative like everything she heard that day who she heard what she heard what was happening and then she was making sense of it and then every time my grandfather's name was Jan she would say Jan 
are you listening to me? And he would go, hmm, you know. Or he'd also learned through the years, I think, to avoid the criticism from granny. He would um, pause at the, he would sort of grunt at the right moment, you know, even though he was asleep. <laughs> so I think the storytelling comes from my granny, most probably. I've never thought about it, but I think that's where it comes from. My mom, though, was a huge influence on my life because she and my dad divorced when I was quite young. So there was a long period where it was just us, you know. So that was nice before she remarried and I had two sisters. She had two, you know, I got two sisters from my mom's second marriage. And, um, and my mom, yeah, she taught us a lot. She was one of that women who came in the 60s. She was the first woman to get a master's in computer science when computers still stood in a whole hall. Um, she was determined to move out of the Fochwal mining community and make a success of her life. She is a force to be reckoned with. You know, it's quite intimidating at times. You know, she's really, I know we're most probably going to talk about that. If you talk about superwoman concept, that's my mom, you know. And, of course, that puts a lot on you, uh, a burden on you. But as well, I mean, so there was always with us, she was loving, very loving, but there was also the expectation, the three goals of us, you will perform. You know, you will get somewhere in life. And, I, well, you know, my sisters in particular, my one sister, both sisters are very successful lawyers and, and very powerful in their own domains. So, Mom, yeah, played a big role. Mm. And interesting, your father, you, in fact, there was a point where, in fact, you said you didn't want to see your father no. anymore, and he was, he was an actively absent from your life. But he said something which was really, really very cruel. He said to you, you will never make anything of your life. You will never be successful. And despite all that... Mm. Uh, that no. Stay with you, that line? Yeah. Lots of money was spent in therapy on that one. Um, yeah, no, I mean, what happened was that he was very absent. I had to go and visit him according to the court order. And then when I was 13, I had one another. He was an alcoholic, and, I, and he was a pharmacist, so also had access to prescription drugs, you know, and so on. And the, when I was that holiday when I was 13, I said, enough now. You know, I'm not doing this again. And then I had a say. If you turn 13, the court actually allows the child to have a say in this kind of thing, whether you go for visits or not. And then I didn't see him again until my first year at university where he wanted me to write off some policies, you know, see that to him, that he, I needed money again for something. And I said as a joke over the phone, I'll sign that off if you sign me off. And he said, sure. And just like that. And then we, a couple of days later, we were in the magistrate court. I didn't, I went on my own. I said to the judge, please tell him never to get in touch with me again. The judge looked at him, looked at me and said, I don't know what's going on here, but you better behave to my dad. Um, we walked out of the courtroom. It was all done. And... Um, Sorry, I have a very bad cold. And um, we got to the end of a path, and he turned left, and I turned right. And I turned back because I can still remember the roses because I really needed him just to look back once, and he didn't. You know, he just kept walking. And then that night, obviously feeling horrible, feeling self, whatever, I don't know what was going on inside him, he phoned me, and that's when he said he raged. He was just raging, you know, and he said, you will never make a success of your life. I can tell you now. I can see it, and you've also got that genetic thing that will prevent you from being a success in life. And, of course, at 17, 18, that's a hard thing to deal with because you, in any case, in that time of your life where you still worry a lot, you know, and so on. So one of the things that I did when I was writing the book... Um, was, I mean, I'm jumping a bit forward, but one of the things that happened after the hysterectomy was as I started healing physically, I re realized I had to deal emotionally with things that I had parked deep into my subconscious, as we all do. We all have little gremlins mm -hmm. that we park somewhere in a little safe space, and we go, 
you stay there, you know, and I can live with you right there, but don't now come and bother me anymore. But they jumped up, a lot of them. And one of them was also my dad, you know, and this thing about doubting myself and, and so on and so on. And, you know, you can say, because people look, as with many of us, people look from the outside and they go, oh, my God, you know, you've been a member of parliament, the youngest woman ever to be elected, you know, you've got educated, you became ambassador at 30 and so on. But they don't know the self-doubt that you sit with sometimes inside yourself. And so and I think a lot of that had to do with my dad um, and that kind of comments. And and so one of the things I did is he, he's di he died a couple of years, well, many years ago when I was about 30 years now. And um, I went, I didn't go to his funeral. I was pregnant with my little one, my second one, but I wouldn't have gone in any case. Um, and I went to Kimberley, which was the last place I saw him, and I went to the Khret Khat, the big old, and I did a little ceremony there, and I tied a ribbon around uh, the posting there where nobody was looking, and I kind of said to him, I'm done. You know, I have actually been a success in my life. got great kids. Yeah, my marriage, not so successful, but, you know, that happens. I'm not taking that on as a guilt thing. And I... I really want to be free now of all these pain and stuff that you caused me. You know, as so many kids in South Africa, of course, who have far worse stories than I do, and adults who sit with that. And I, I said, I'm done, and thank you for making me. You know, I'm thankful for that contribution. And I do actually love you, but I'm letting you go now. And it was a beautiful moment, actually, for me, because the... I don't know if you've been at the big hall recently. It's quite beautiful there now, a big sort of thing. And there were some beautiful fish eagles. That's, there's a couple of breeding pairs, and they were calling. And as you know, that's such a haunting call. So for me, that was part of my journey as well, was to get rid of, of the ghosts of, of the past, you know, and Dad was a big one, yeah. I imagine these these memories and these stories sort of floating as you're sitting there floating into mm -hmm. your mind because there's one chapter where you deal with the men in your life I mean in a way the book mm -hmm. is a story for women mm -hmm. I, it's not exclusively but mm -hmm. there's a lot of mm -hmm. thoughts about women specifically older women and the silence that surrounds them so it's, a, it's really a, a an absolute must for women but you deal with the men in your life mm -hmm. um, there was your dad mm -hmm. there was Philip your mum's stepdad there was Jerry. I mean, yes. let's talk about Jerry. I know that you want to talk about <laughs> Jerry because he was—he was the love of your he life. Was. You met him in mm. Ireland. He was a radio broadcaster. He was a real mm. personality, and you—you you pay tribute to Jerry as well. Is he yeah, still with you? Is he? Oh yeah. Yeah, so I was married to Villarreal for 21 years. Um, complex married. We got married when I was 20, you know, so very young. Um, uh, the Calvinist thing, you can't get married. If, you better get married if you're going to have sex, you know. You better get, <laughs> do that quickly. Um, and Villarreal and I got married very young, and we did great things together politically, you know, and, and so on, and had two beautiful, amazing kids, you know, super bright, <laughs> lots of about genes in the brains. And so we... Um, it was probably had a lot of faults from the start. You know, who knows at 20 about, you know, how very few people know what they, what they should be doing, you know, at 20. And then by the end, we, we went to Ireland after embassy, after my years in politics here. I asked Mbeki if I could go as an ambassador. I needed a break from the politics here. Um, but it was very clear. And I, it was partly to try and see if we can save the marriage, and it wasn't savable. And so we couldn't salvage it. So we got divorced in Ireland. And I stayed on as the head of UNICEF in Ireland after my embassy years. Philanum stayed on to do some reconciliation work across the border. And then about two years after the divorce, um, this guy Valadam had remarried as well. 
and this very famous Irish broadcaster, Jerry Ryan. If you ask any Irish person who's Jerry Ryan, they will tell you. Um, and he was super famous. Of course, Melania had promised herself only one thing after the divorce from Malalam, and that is never to get involved with a man with a famous surname. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Jerry was in, he's in Ireland of millions times more famous than Jerry, or than Malalam would have been here. And um, he was one of those larger-than-life characters, you know, and he was separated from his wife, and um, he pursued me, and I was like, no, 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 for a long time, but he, anybody who knows Jerry knows that he will persevere once he locks on. And, yeah, and we became partners and had the happiest two years of my life, absolute the love of my life, um, and then he died. Um, I found him on our bedroom floor. And, yeah, and it was devastating. It was devastating also because it was very much then in the public eye because literally people will tell you they know when, where they were when they heard Jerry Ryan had died. People screamed at, uh, screamed at it out in shopping malls and, and so on. And the media was outside the house within about 20 minutes after he died because the ambulance people had told you know, the media. And from that day onwards, until I came back to South Africa, I had media trailing me, paparazzi. I mean, it was really, really a devastating thing. And I loved Ireland. I was always going to spend my time. We were between South Africa and Ireland. I mean, I would But... It was devastating. It was devastating on so many levels. One, because I really loved him, and just that was the biggest bit. But then also, of course, they weren't divorced yet, him and his wife, because in Ireland you have to be separated for four years before you're allowed to divorce. And, oh, that dark Catholic underbelly, they just immediately, she came to claim the body. I wasn't allowed to see the body again. There was a big drama around the funeral, whether I could even attend. The president of Ireland came to attend the funeral. It was broadcast live. People were lining the streets. Um, and it was tough. It was really, really tough. I mean, the rituals of mourning is so important. It's the one thing I figured out then. And eventually I just couldn't take the public. I didn't want to be Jerry Ryan's sad girlfriend for the rest of my life, so I came back to South Africa, which I'm happy I did, but it was a tough time. And then during the book, it was important for me. I, I go back to Ireland frequently. My one child is still there. He's about to leave. But um, for me, it was really important to go back to the grave and also say to say to him, I'd like to be released. Of Not about not the memories. The memories will never go. I think about Jerry every day, and there's always a story that I want to tell him. Um, but the the heavy grief that one can almost become attached to, where you almost feel... If, I'm, if I let this go, I'm being disloyal to him, and I realize that's not what he would want, and I don't need to do that anymore. And so I did a little ritual there as well and asked him to, to let me go a little bit, you know, so, and to help me to let go of the grief, and that's, that's really helped. Yeah. yeah, gosh. There's so much searching in the book, and I was saying to you earlier, there's so many S's in this book. There's searching, there's mm -hmm. surgery, there's, um, there's seven, and I just have to read this little passage mm -hmm. because it's so significant. I started school in 1973. Seven years later, in 1980, we moved to another town where I started high school. Seven years after that, I got married. In 1994, seven years after my marriage, I was elected as a member of parliament. After seven years in parliament, I was appointed as an ambassador in 2001. I would meet Jerry seven years later after my marriage with Wilhelm ended 20 years after we'd first met. I would leave Ireland seven years after Jerry and I started our relationship and his subsequent death. Returning to South Africa, I had reinvented myself as a political analyst, and it was now seven years later. 
So it's, it's something a little bit about the magic of seven that has been with you. But there's also something about... And can I just say on that? I yeah. think we all have rhythms. Yeah. I think we all, if we look back, and it might not be seven. Seven is, I found out, in the, I think, in Buddhism and so on, yeah. is a significant number. But it doesn't need to be seven. But I think if we all look back, we'll start to see patterns. Or, and if we are aware of those patterns, we are ready to to move on when it's ready to move on you know and i don't think that stops until the day of your death you know there's no point where you have to give up on the retransformation and changing over you just have to find it you have to find yes. your rhythm and, and i think seven is the number of creation so yes. it's significant yes. but the other thing the other s that comes out loud and clear is spirituality mm. because you may have done your thesis in feminist theology um i you refer a number of times to your calvinist background so you know religion which may be quite distinct from spirituality has been a big thing mm. but spirituality is something and i was quite surprised because you can be a bit chatty as i say it could be your irish uh, your irish years but yes. silence is also something that's mm. been very big for you. So mm. tell us a little bit about your journey with spirituality mm. because it's become stronger mm. in recent times. Definitely. So I studied theology. I was the only class, only woman in my class of 50 men. Mm. I wanted to become a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and women were not allowed to be ordained yet. So the professors in Stellenbosch was like, oh, my what are we doing with this woman? And they said, you're very welcome, but it's nothing official. You know, so you'd get the degree, but of course there was no... Eventually it did change um, in the Senate where they had to decide whether to open the church to all races or women becoming ordained. They decided the woman was easier to, than the race issue. <laughs> so they allowed that in. But by that stage, I was so disillusioned with the church and so angry because I had become politically active by that stage. So I wasn't you know, going to go that way anymore. And then I went on to do a master's in feminist theology and philosophy. So it's philosophy of religion. But, you know, once you've been so deeply interested in that which is more, you know, that which is not just this. You know, I still find it impossible to believe that this is what, that humans are trying, keeping each other together, because I think we will just kill the society, kill nature, kill everything if there's not something higher. Whatever that is, is different for different people. And for me, I don't do well if I'm not, I'm listening to myself saying this, but I don't do well when I'm not have time for reflection, for calming down, for going deep into a spiritual world, to go to meditate. That's what I do now. I try and meditate every day a little bit. Not very good at it, but I, you know, I make lists on the side just so that I don't keep going on tangents. And, and I, you know, I'm always searching. That's maybe the other S. I'm really searching for what is out there, what is deeper, what is more. Otherwise, I get too bored with life, I think. That's maybe another thing of me. And so I have been one of the very significant moments in my life is Sumang Kit says that most, many women, when they turn 50, start, goes on a physical journey in search. They don't even know it, but they go in the physical journey in search of something more. And I think it might not be f on the year 50, but for me, coincidentally, it was. I only read this afterwards. And I decided I had not been on a holiday for years and years and years since Jerry had died. And in the previous holidays before that was with my kids, and unhappy kids, unhappy husband, Oy, you know, and I just decided I'm done with holidays. It's just a waste of money. And then I was sitting, I'd done some broadcasting for, seven, uh, for Cape Talk. I stood in for John Matham, and I was nearly dead. I don't know how those guys do it. I was dead after two weeks of daily three-hour broadcasting. And I was sitting in the hairdresser, as you do, and usually I'd have a book with me, not to read the stupid magazines. And then I 
I forgot my book and I was paging through, I think it was Amari Claire actually, which is not a stupid magazine. Um, and I saw this thing about a woman's retreat in Bali. And I took screenshots and I was even in the address. I was, can I afford that? And I looked at my bank balance and then I went home and I emailed them and said, can I come next week? And they emailed me back the next morning because obviously it's time difference. And they said, we have one spot left. Please come, you know. And I went online. We'd love to see you. It was a beautiful little message. Went online, immediately booked a plane ticket before I could think about it too much because I knew otherwise I wouldn't go. And then that afternoon, my kids were sitting and watching TV. And I went like, hey, by the way, I'm going to Bali. You know, now the kids don't listen to you. And I was sort of counting five, four, three, two, one, waiting. for, And then I could see that, what, what? You know, with whom? And I was like, no, on my own. And my son was, are you having a midlife crisis? And I said, no, I'm just going to Bali. I'm just going to Bali. And, um, and I did. And that really did a lot for me. I went to Bali then subsequently five times in four years. You know, just loved, loved being there and on my own and so on. And eventually, to get back to the spirituality there, I went to the last one. And I, I would go as soon as I can again. I went to Bali Silent Retreat, which I did a five-day retreat in complete silence. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. There's no pressure on you. It's just silent, you know, and that thing about moving slower, breathing deeper, being completely, you know, your phones don't work there. There's no media, you know, nothing. It's just you and nature and, yes, other people, but you're not allowed to talk to them, which is really weird because I made up stories, you know, as we're sitting in the dining room. I wonder where you're from because you don't even know their names or where they're from. You look German to me. I wonder if you're German, you know. You look, you know, so that kind of thing. Um, and that, that, you know, that was extraordinary to me. When I then wrote the book, I thought, let me try and do a little spiritual journey again. You know, I've always wanted to go, do you know who Thich Nhat Hanh is? He's a Buddhist monk who made um, mindfulness famous in the West. And he's got this, has had for years, he died re- earlier the year that I went. He has this place called Plum Village where you can visit. And they just opened for after COVID. And I emailed again and they said I could come. Went there, met some lovely people, but man, was that not the right place for me. Mm-hmm. Who could have guessed? I'm not made out for monastic life. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and there was a lot of me swearing, like, you know, when we had to do the work and so on. And they call no mud, no lotus is the sort of one of the slogans. And I was like, fuck, there's no mud, no lotus business. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I hate this, you know, like kind of thing. Um, that was not so successful because I think there was too many rules. I, I'm not good with rules and never been. And, you know, too many rules, too many prescriptions, too many. Ask me nicely if you want me to do something. Don't tell me I have to do something, you know. And, yeah, so, but my journey with spirituality is is ongoing, you know. And it's it's ongoing also because I do miss the rituals of organized religion, but, you know, too burnt by the Dutch Reformed Church. So I don't know if I'll ever go back to that. So you've been, I I want the word activist is so overworked, but nonetheless, I think one could put, you know, it's it's your label um, as you are a Mm. feminist. And we've talked about the men in your life and the difficulties and so on, but I think women increasingly, maybe even more so as a result of the hysterectomy, you've sort of embraced women. You have a women's circle that you Mm. talk about Mm. life-changing. I mean, women can be lovely. They can be awful, Mm. but they can generally Mm. be lovely. And I think for you, Mm. they've been a huge... Uh, safety net Mm. so it goes back to Bali and the last time I was in Bali after my 
after my quiet retreat, my silent retreat, so I end up in a boot. Has anybody been to Bali? Mm-hmm. Have anybody seen Eat, Pray, Love? Yes. With, yeah. And you remember how noisy it is and the scooters and the, you know, Bali. So I went to a boot. A boot is, sort of is where Eat, Pray, Love plays off and, you know, that monkey forest and so on because I wanted to do a course in Ayurvedic um, cooking. And... Um, ended up there in this place called Yoga Barn, lovely place, but very big operation, and there were loads of lectures and stuff, and I thought, oh, I better go to something, you know, at least. Didn't w- sign up for something, but felt like really, oh, my God, I'm not sure. At the last moment, didn't feel like it was so hot, I was so tired. Eventually did, met this amazing woman from Jamaica called Nadine McNeil. Um, the Universal Empress is her thing, on, if you want to look at... Um, uh, Instagram and met Nadine we figured out she did the course very intimidating beautiful Jamaican woman you know like she's my age and but does yoga every day so she looks amazing she's muscled and she's beautiful and a see-through kaftan on you know who needs to wear underwear you know but I mean you know that kind of thing or beautiful woman um, and she did a woman's circle with us so I was blown away with that um, we kept in touch. She had worked for UNICEF before, so that was the link. And then COVID hit. And Nadine set up these women's circles during COVID. And we met every week via Zoom. So they were women from Australia, from oh, really every point in the world. You know, like we sometimes did it very late at night for me and sometimes very early in the morning so that everybody could be a common day. And we met every week. And through this thousands of miles and through this virtual platform, Women who've never met each other, most probably never will, but became the best of friends and held each other. You know, we held each other through COVID and so on. And that that consists to this day. We don't meet every week. We meet now maybe month, monthly, sometimes tw- every second month. And it, the group have changed a lot. And some women come in with this kind of a core group. And when the hysterectomy happened, I just literally wept. I sat there and I was so lonely. I think this is the one theme of hysterectomies. Women feel very lonely through this. You know, it's you're not prepared for it. The partners are not prepared for it. Women are left sort of to their own devices physically and sort of expected to be quickly back and then emotionally as well. And I just wept. And they were the ones who kept me together, you know, and kept encouraging me to write and kept me to doing that. And I've set up my own little women's circle there's only three or four of us in it we actually had one on Thursday night and it's sort of neighbors in my street that I thought would enjoy it and it's just helped us so much that thing about just sitting together meditating for a few minutes checking in where we are discussing one question and then being there for the others oh and you know it's all of this the one thing it's done it's pushed me back I'm, I was very much into women's rights and women's issues and so on and then I sort of it got a little bit weakened because I was in mainstream politics you know so obviously the women's issues were important to me but it wasn't the main thing for me and I still have to do political work now but what it's done for me is it's pushed me right back into that mainstream discussion around women and for me in particularly older women you know what's happening to older women because it's the one thing that was bugging me even before the hysterectomy and now it's just like red lights Two last questions. Um, one is you've alluded to, well, you haven't actually, but talking of the hysterectomy, there is a lot of pain, a lot of damage, mm. a lot of reflection, all sorts of things, but also a lot of rage. I mean, very, very yes. angry. Yes. So I just want to, and the, the last question is going to be about your children. Oh, okay. But I just mm-hmm. want to talk about the rage and the mm. anger, which in itself has been quite motivating because it, you've been 
enraged, mm. not just for you, but for womankind. Mm. Just, just synthesize that anger and how it's worked. So I write about it in the book. And I, I was about... So first, first, when I was going through the hysterectomy, there was... After the hysterectomy, so what happened is that they found an ovarian growth, the size. It was the size of a small watermelon. Um, and I didn't want a hysterectomy. So I went through all that, you know, those things that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, first went through the shock and the disbelief. And then I was like negotiating like the hell out of doctors. No, 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 no. Can we not do this? Can we not do this? Can I be awake during the op? And then you show me first what you're taking out before we talk. And they would, no, you can't do that. You know, we're getting too close to your lungs and you can't do that. I was like, really? No, I'm fine. No, no, you're not doing that. Um, Do I really need a hysterectomy? You know, so I did all of that. Then the operation happened. And two days later, the result came back and it wasn't cancer. Thank God. I was one of 3% of women who had that specific kind of growth. And of course, you'd be of course I was relieved right but also I I was so sad because then he had also I, I described that in the book you'll read the scene he had given me a photographs of the they asked before and if you want to have photographs and I went like fine whatever then as I woke up the guy was like do you want to see the photograph typical doctor and I was like no I'm dealing with morphine here leave me alone for now you know and then when they I found out that it wasn't cancer I was like but now we took out all those organs and I had a radical hysterectomy which means uterus ovaries cervix ligaments um what am I leaving out omentum which is a fatty lining around your around your organs where the cancer cells hide so I had everything was taken out, you know, and that's very radical, big cut to my stomach and so on. And then um, I went through a very sad period because I was physically healing, but I was also very sad. You know, I thought about my organs, you know, and I looked at them. I looked at the pictures then. And I don't know if you've ever seen them in real life. They look very different from when from the pictures, the drawing. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm like so sad, you know. And I mean, I'd been through menopause. I've I was about to become a grandmother, so it wasn't that. It wasn't that sort of grief. It was just grief in general about losing something that was mine. And then a couple of weeks later, I was driving one day, and I'd just come back from a functional doctor, and suddenly I felt this weird feeling inside me. And I suddenly re- I was worried what it was, whether I should stop the car. My hands were sweating. I was, like, furious, and I realized I was furious. I was in red-hot rage. It's like... As somebody said the other day in the shop, I heard somebody say, my niceness have left me. And it was like the niceness had left. And I was pissed off. I just had these pictures. I was driving on Philips Cosana, you know, Deval. And I was thinking, I suddenly had this vivid image of all these women around the world who were sitting with these scars on their bodies, you know. And the reason why I was so angry was that I could not understand why they could not diagnose whether it was cancer or not except to do a hysterectomy. I could not understand that. I went like, you guys can do that with prostates. A simple blood test. Why can't you do that with ovarian cysts? And I, by that stage, started to research things. And I found out that, particularly ovarian tumors, um, there's no, no progress in the survival rate in the last 50 years around pro- about ovarian cancer. The only thing they can do is if they find one is to figure out is it a cyst, so it's got fluid in it, then usually they don't worry too much, or is it a heart mass? If it's a heart mass, the only thing they can do is go in and they will usually do a preemptive radical hysterectomy because they don't want to send it to the lab, close you up, 
and they will usually do an abdominal um, cut, as you know, as well, um, because they don't want to see, they don't want any cells to chip off by doing it laparoscopically or vaginally. So a very big operation, and they don't want to have to open you a couple of days later again. But so here's my thing. Then how, how is that possible that you cannot figure it out at all, you know, in any other way than doing this? And also what I found out at that stage was that the survival rate for ovarian cancer was 29% compared to prostate cancer, which is 95%, right? So I went and searched because now I'm angry. And I searched and I looked at how much research funding is spent on ovarian cancer versus prostate cancer. Two and a half times more on prostate cancer. Surprise? No. And it's even worse for ovarian cancer. Not quite as bad for breast or cervical cancer, so it really intrigued me why. And the only thing I could figure out was that, of course, breast and ovarian and, and uh, cervical cancer, sorry, did I say ovarian? I mean breast and cervical. Breast and cervical cancer, of course, affect younger women as well. And it's, it's very dangerous, especially breast, if it's in young women, well, far more so than in old, older women. And so I was like, okay, so that's, that must be part of the answer, is that somehow if we have gone past our childbearing ages, the complaints that hit us... And of, uh, ovarian in particular, it's not unique to older women, but it's certainly far more prevalent over 50. Then maybe it's not so important to research it. You know, we've done what we apparently were supposed to do for society. So I was super angry about, I'm, I'm still angry about it. I th you know, I still think about these. And, and you know, hysterectomies are very common, as you can see around this table, right? Um, they make one out of five women would have had a hysterectomy by the age of 55. Um, they do 1.5 million hysterectomies in the EU every year. 600,000 in America alone. In America alone, there's 20 million people at any given women in any given stage living with hysterectomies. So it's a huge deal, right? And yet somehow, it's first of all, it's quiet. People don't really talk about it. Even when I would, people will find out I have a hysterectomy, they would say, I also had one. I'd go, why are you whispering to me? You know, why are we not shouting it from the rooftops? Secondly, very little support for women in preparation, going through it, and then in the healing process afterwards. Women are so alone. They go to Facebook groups and they talk there. They don't have the support. Thirdly, why is it that we need such a barbaric, in a way, procedure? And let me just say from the start, as, as two people here have said, um, hysterectomies can be life-saving and they can be life-improving. Really can be. But they are big deals, and they should not be done unnecessarily. And in America, 70% or more of hysterectomies that are done do not meet the expert panel's criteria for, the, for, for hysterectomies. So there's also a thing about doctors, but you've almost now reached that age. You know, let's rip it all out. Why are you going to? And now we're dealing preemptively with any possible cancer that you can have. It's, it's not that simple. It's a big deal when you go through it, you know. Um, and so for me, there was a lot of rage. Maybe the rage has calmed down, but there's an anger and a determination that we need to talk about these things, that we need to become activists. And then linked to that was the thing that I started realizing. I, I felt some shame. I didn't want to tell people I had hysterectomy. And I was like thinking, why am I doing that? What is wrong with me? You know, there's a big up. I didn't do anything wrong. What's, what's happening here? And I think it was also to do with the fact that I didn't want my clients in the financial sector to know to think that I'm becoming old. Was this almost an old woman's thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued by that. So I went down my thought process. Why is this happening to me? And I realized it is because in society, older women become invisible. They render us invisible. 
and I write a whole bit about that in the book, they, you know, we become less important and so on. And so the book ends with a little bit of a war cry and saying, first of all, I'm here and you're not going to shut me up, you know. And actually, we should start looking differently at older women because, one, we deserve to be seen and to be heard. But secondly, we have a hell of a lot still to give, you know, way. And actually, our often a second act, Jane Fonda talks about second and third acts, our second act often starts after our children are sort of let more off our hands, those of us who have children. And we have a lot to do and a lot to give. And so I'm, I'm very firm about that commitment, you know, of, of being seen and being heard. Well, if you it's don't... It's an angry book. Can I just no, say that? Yes, Somebody no, no, said recently it's, it's a very angry book no, um, to me in an interview. And I said, I don't think so. I don't, it's not an angry book, you know. But there's a bit on rage. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reflective book, I think. It's, it's a book of many things. And if you doubted whether or not you need to read it, hopefully this has changed your mind. And if you doubted whether or not you knew anything about hysterectomy, listen to the podcast because yeah. that will tell you everything that you need to know and more. Very finally, you have done what you are here on the planet to do, which is bear two beautiful children. <laughs> And I think Vilmay in particular has been, um, she's obviously picked up uh, some of your wisdom, and there's a, a word about wisdom here in the book as well. But she has, she's been very wise. She's had moments of great sort of, Ahman, what are you thinking? Mm. Tell us how she has um, been instrumental in increasing your wisdom. So Vomi, I have two children. Vomi is the eldest, and then I have Vian. They came two and a half years apart, so she's now 32. And it was very interesting, almost to the year that... Um, I had the hysterectomy, she had a baby. So there was something about the cycle of life and the circle of life continuing. Um, and so there's little Eli who gave me this cold um, for giving me a very open mouth kiss the other day when he had a terrible cold. And um, and Vomi is one of those, you know, when you have a child, those of you who work with children or have had children yourself, you sometimes get those little old souls when they come out of you and there's just a wisdom in them. So even when she was tiny, when there was conflict in the house, when she was about four or three, she would say, sit next to Vilmi and let's understand what's going on. You know, <laughs> talk to me. And there's still a lot of her like that. You know, she is unbelievably wise, super strong woman. Um, and, you know, often she's the one that would remind me about certain wisdoms. Like, for example, I mean, she's very good with, you know, one of the things I write about and that I had to deal with is money you know don't we all you know the fear of becoming a bag lady in my case and Vomi would say oh for god's sake mom you always figure it out you've been in so many tight spots just let it go relax you know think about money that's just energy um and then she was very wise around when I felt a bit of shame after the hysterectomy also in particular because I needed help and women are not good at taking help asking help and you literally after a radical hysterectomy cannot do anything for about three except for this very brave woman who went to Boulder's warehouse on the first in the first week as she confessed wasn't a good idea um but you know you can really not do much and I hated that I hated that I had to ask for help to do the most simplest thing they tell you can only pick up a cup of tea you know so very tough and she was the one who went oh for god's sake what's will you just stop you know you have had major surgery you need help we are here we will do it you know so there's something in the wisdom. I also think sometimes, you know, maybe the younger generation is a little bit freer of some of the, certainly the Calvinism is not there. You know, she doesn't have that because I didn't raise them in any Calvinist way. Or she's more free of it than most of us would be. Um, still, I think the good girl stuff is there, which I talk a lot about in the book. Superwoman, definitely there, you know. So it's also sad to see some of the things you hope you could stop them from becoming, but they have to walk their own journeys. 
They do, and in your shadow, they're working, uh, walking. And I think that, uh, and I think that it's a wonderful relationship you have with your children, as is evidenced mm. in the book. Melanie, it's been fascinating because I know that there's so much more. We haven't even talked about Nelson Mandela and the Arch, mm. but hey, read the book and you'll find out more. If anybody would like to know a little bit more about you and the podcast. Your website is? Just Milani Favort. That's yeah. the Zeta. But if they just search Milani Favort, they'll find that. Just for, remember, it's Favort, not Favut. Um, even though you might think it's Favut. Yes, and you can actually buy the book directly from there if you can't find it in bookshops. It's a, there's a direct link, very easy, and I will courier the book out to you. Mm. Superwoman. Lovely. <laughs> Milani, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank, thank you. you.